most of us do not even connect with Buddhism from birth. Most of us have connection or interest in the Buddhist tradition much later in life. And we had the possibility to choose among so many traditions. Nowadays, workshop or retreat are organized in nearly all traditions, also traditions which were very remote, like shamanic tradition. The other day I met a friend coming back from Brazil and he had gone to some of the shamanic workshops taking ayahuasca, his drug, and he was describing some of the experience that he had. And based on such a shamanic tradition, one may have fantastic experiences. One may discover other worlds, underworld, higher world, many different kind of worlds, a vision, and sometimes meet some spirit, friendly spirit, who could help us, help us in life and sometimes help us to restore our health. So some of those traditions seem to be very powerful and they are certainly very colorful. When one reads the description of a vision in red or in green according to the type of drug which are taken. So many visions and discovering of different worlds. How many types of drugs or many shamanic journey may lead us to such different worlds? Now we may wonder in the Buddhist tradition coming to a Buddhist retreat, so what are we concerned with? Are we concerned with discovering other worlds? Are we concerned with having visions, fantastic visions of different spirits? helpful spirit, or we may call them differently, we may call them bodhisattva, deity, or whatever. So is it what we are concerned with in the Buddhist retreat? The Buddha very often has spoken about experiences, not so much a vision, but deep experience of bliss, happiness. And he has said that those are of no deep concern for the Buddhist path, that one should not be interested in them, not attached to them. The Buddha had only one concern, it was bondage and the freedom from bondage. And he expressed that in a very clear way. He understood the truth of birth and death and was seeking the freedom from birth and death. So we may see that his attempt is very presumptuous. That his main concern is freedom from death not vision, not restoring our health, but freedom from death. 
any experiences are changing and therefore if they are changing their condition and if they are conditioned they are not true freedom so even the most beautiful experiences they will come and they will go so that's not the concern of the Buddhist path that's not freedom from the condition that's not freedom from birth and death so that may seem very beautiful fine this path is fantastic because now we are really aiming at freedom from birth and death but we may also wonder is it really for me? can I hope to deepen my practice so much that I could reach a stage beyond birth and death or is it just reserved only for a few very gifted persons maybe person from Asia can I myself also believe that will be possible for me to reach this stage beyond birth and death and of course it is an important question so what will make the difference between people who could expect and hope for freedom from birth and death and people who could not hope for freedom from birth and death and we are all different in age, in culture, education, personal history certainly all that make much difference between us yet in our essence, in our deepest nature in that which is beyond birth and death there is no difference among any sentient being so there is no ground to make any difference and think that person could reach and that person could not reach because the essential nature of all of us is exactly the same and it's only by referring to this essential nature that freedom from birth and death can be reached not from our personal history not from our education, not from our profession it is only because in the depth of our nature our essence is unborn that any one of us may or has the potential to awaken fully and to reach freedom from birth and death and this essential nature the unborn is called the Buddha nature and all sentient beings have this Buddha nature so there is no one that one could say this person or this being has no potential to awaken nobody is left out of this possibility now it doesn't mean that since we have this potentiality tomorrow morning we will be awakened maybe it may take or require a little bit more practice than just one night so the potential means that it is possible for all of us that there is no way that something could make it impossible yet it still does require the practice of the past the example to illustrate this Buddha nature which is our nature, our true nature he said that like there is cream in the milk 
like they are in sesame seed, then they Buddha nature in any sentient being. Or like the sky, when the clouds are going away, will appear completely clear and blue. The nature, the nature of the sky is not to be covered by the clouds. Clouds just come and go. So in the same way, our true nature, our unborn nature, is not covered essentially. What is covering it is just impermanent phenomena who can go away. And that's not specific only to the Buddhist tradition. All, most of the mystical tradition will also need and refer to an essential nature which is already pure. Like in the Christian tradition when it is said that men and women have been created in the image of God and that for the Christian mystic he or she has to know herself or himself in the depth of his soul and there he will know God by referring, by realizing their deepest nature they will know God because there is no difference between their true nature and God so it's not something very specific to the Buddhist tradition to state this Buddha nature as our ultimate nature as our true nature in the Buddhist tradition usually a retreat starts by what is called taking refuge and actually in the West is sometimes difficult to know which part of the tradition to keep and which part to get rid of there's no need that we will take all the tradition from Asia and believe that everything is needed that we need to dress like Tibetan or like Burmese people that certainly is not needed yet when we get rid of some aspect of the tradition one has to be very careful not to underestimate the potential and the value of some aspect of the tradition so the taking of refuge is something very traditional and that one may question usually the taking refuge is taking refuge in the Buddha in the Dhamma and in the Sangha the Buddha of course is an awakened one the historical Buddha the Dhamma is his teaching, the path, but also the truth. And the Sangha is ordinary people like us, or awakened people. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, in Dharma and Sangha, is that we will rely, rely on those three aspects for our practice. Now the way to say taking refuge is slightly strange. The way that it is phrased sometimes in Sanskrit I think is quite nice because it says Namo Bodhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya which just means homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma and homage to the Sangha. And homage is slightly different than taking refuge. Homage is a sign of respect. And that is very important if one wants to learn anything to have a sense of respect only to listen to something. 
I remember I was teaching French in Thailand and I had a class of about 40 young girls from 14 to 16 and it was outside of a building and if one would come late she would very respectfully bow down and ask the permission to join the class which is not the tradition in Switzerland, I don't know how it is in England but uh, I don't imagine it is so and the respect was respect respecting somebody from whom one will learn and if there is not this respect it's very difficult to listen not a respect which will make us believe what you said but a respect to listen a respect to believe that is much too far and then we'll give up our own discrimination but if there is not this respect to listen then how can one understand what he said in the Buddhist tradition, the way it is done is interesting. Usually, when somebody went to the Buddha to ask questions, they would ask three times before the Buddha accepts to answer. And then after that, the Buddha would answer. And in this way, it means that the person coming and asking really wanted to know. There was a willingness really to listen to what the Buddha would say. And people came to see the Buddha, they were not all Buddhist or followers, some were Brahmin, following the Hindu tradition, yet they will come to see the Buddha to ask questions sometimes. And they always be very respectful. Addressing very respectfully, and it's a way to really receive. If one has not this openness to listen completely, then one cannot hear and there is no way that one can understand what is being said. So this homage that is usually paid at the beginning of a retreat to the Buddha, to the Dharma and to the Sangha is not an act of faith like in the Christian tradition where the faith will be very important and can even save us. It's just um, an act of respect for the tradition, for what one could learn and then one can listen carefully and then accept or reject but only after having heard carefully, not before I remember in Dharamsala when I was studying at the Tibetan library came a professor from Austria and we used all the students to make profession to the Lama before the class so he came and did not make profession, which of course was no problem but as soon as the Lama would start to speak, he will stop him and ask questions. And so for about two weeks, we had no class. He would just argue with the Lama before even the Lama had spoken. And I think that was a good example of having no respect for what this monk could have said. And first to listen, and then argue if he wanted to argue. But without listening, how is it possible even to respect and to receive anything? This aspect of the tradition of taking refuge, we may understand that not as an act of faith, not as a way to become Buddhist, but just as a mark of respect for all the old tradition which is transmitted and one is willing to listen and then to reject or to accept what is good or what is not useful for oneself. I was just giving a course in a state. And I explain a way to practice Tonglen, which is the development of love and compassion. 
in a slightly different way than the way he usually taught. And one student came in an interview and said, well, I can't practice as you have explained, so I practice this way. So he explained me the way he was practicing. It was interesting, but he had not tried the way I, I had explained. After one week of practice, I said, fine, it seems very nice the way you practice, but uh, what about trying? One, maybe the way I explained, so he could choose at least he would have two ways, not only one. And it is interesting to see that for one week, he could not let himself really trying something because the old way worked for him. Then there was not, not the power to listen completely and try. So when I saw him, I said, why don't you try just once? And maybe you discover something new and you can combine the two uh, ways of choose. And the next day I did not. And he said, oh, it worked. So for one week, it did not work because he could not really try. And when he tried, he understood the aspect of what was transmitted there. So that's a good example of the way to be open to listen and even try. And maybe in this openness, there is space for discovery. If one is completely uh, closed, there is no place for discovery. You may decide at the beginning of every sitting, if you wish, in your mind, thinking of refuge, namo bodhaya, namo dharmaya, namo sangaya. If you wish, not an obligation. It's done this way. I remember once I was seated at IMS for a three months Vipassana course and a Tibetan Lama came and he said, if you don't take refuge, your practice is useless. So that was quite interesting. People had been seated for two months, it's maybe useless practice because they were not taking the refuge to start with. So that's not what I mean here. But for some of you who may like to do it, then you may just do it. And for the other, it doesn't matter. You just don't do it. Namo Bodhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya. Now he's taking up refuge in the Buddha, and then mentioned in the historical Buddha, the Dharma as path and truth, and the truth is also our ultimate truth, our ultimate nature. And the Sangha is all here, people practicing together, which is very supportive that when we are tired and we see all our friends here also seated and sometimes people also being tired, sometimes is in pain, their knees in the back and still practicing, that is a very strong inspiration for all of us. And I think to be able to do a retreat like that together, it's very beneficial for all of us. And there is a sense of respect for the small community that is practicing together. But the taking of refuge, even in the traditional text, it is said that it is just a means which is to be disregarded when one has reached the other shore. So like a boat, if you want to cross a river, when you cross the river, you don't carry the boat with you on the dry land. So those are just means to help the practitioner, but by no means have ultimate value. Ultimately, the refuge that we may take all the respect that we have is in our Buddha nature because it is only based on that that we can awaken. The trust in our deepest nature, that what is the ultimate refuge or ultimate homage that we may pay.
for retreat we need some guidelines that it may happen very smoothly and those guidelines are given in different ways but I like to give them this way tonight the first one will be not harming others but in a sense not only not harming but having the sense of other people who are sharing the retreat with us and looking at them with compassion, with love and kindness and with respect in the practice of Tonglen that I will be teaching we will see some aspects of this way of looking at others and that will be quite powerful if one could use this way of seeing other people when you are eating and when we are moving coming into the hall or in the dining hall or at your working period if we may connect with each other in this way of not harming not only not harming but looking at each other with love, compassion and respect that is not we are here practicing love and kindness hoping that we will be able to apply that outside forgetting to apply that among us so outside I will try to use that in my working place I will try to use that when I am moving around and now I am training when I am seated and I forget in all that interaction which is simple because since we are not speaking the interactions are kept very simple and that may be the best opportunity to train our mind to really relate to others with love, kindness and respect that will come in the teaching of Tonglen which I will um, go through during this week to keep the noble silence as it says the ground, the main ground for confusion is concept all the concept that we bring, the view that we have about ourselves about other, about the world all that, all those are just concepts that we are binding us with and to speak will be just to cultivate those concepts therefore practicing double silence is helping us to create a space where we are not anymore so much concerned with concepts it's very important I remember my old teacher, Kinsey Rinpoche, even when he was 80 years old, going for retreat, he would, when he needed a text or something, he would write it down and not speak to his servant. And he certainly had done many, many hours of meditation, and I guess he had a mind very proper for meditation, yet he would be respectful, so respectful of the silence in his retreat that he would write a note to his servant and ask for the book he needed. So that's quite important to respect this aspect of our practice. Another last one is not to take intoxicant. Taking intoxicant will just bring more confusion in the mind. And if it is done, I don't know, in some shamanic tradition and very well organized, but here I have no knowledge about that and we have no plan to uh, go along this road. So we'll just develop a quiet mind and a very clear mind hopefully and leaving that aspect to your exploration outside of the center so not taking any intoxicant that's very important even if I had tried sometimes to sit 
after having maybe drank only two glasses of wine uh, at dinner, how the mind is already just clouded with that, not to speak about much stronger drugs. So it's very important to keep that, not harming others, which means related with compassion, love and respect, not speaking and not taking interference. So that will be the guideline for our retreat. And now I would just like to start to give some instruction about the practice of Tonglen. In this retreat we will develop two aspects essential to our practice, which is said in the Tibetan tradition, like a bird needs two wings to fly, our practice needs two aspects. One aspect which is the development of love, compassion, and another aspect which is wisdom. It's only with those two wings one may fly to awakening, if you wish. If one wing is missing, it doesn't work, whichever wing may be missing. So we'll develop, there will be time in the morning and in the evening, evening for the practice of Tonglen, and there will be other time during the day for the practice of the meditation on the nature of the mind. So balancing those two aspects during our day of practice. I will not go too much in detail tonight with the explanation about the practice of Tonglen, yet I just want to give an introduction to this practice. Tonglen means taking and giving, taking the suffering of all sentient beings and giving our happiness, our virtues, whatever we have and is taught very often in the Tibetan tradition. And I have seen in my practice and in the practice of my friends that it's sometimes very forceful. That I may imagine to take all the suffering of others and then I take some and I think I should take more and I should take more and I feel that I'm forcing myself to take the suffering of others. So I should be a good practitioner. Let's try to take more and more. And there is a sense of not respecting myself. The same way in giving, so I may try to give all my happiness, virtue, wealth, and of course I may add much more to what I have, otherwise it will be quickly given. So I may imagine that I have much more virtues, qualities, and wealth, yet giving at some point, maybe I feel I am reluctant to do that. One may understand when one starts to practice with a sense of self, the self is very limited. It's very difficult for a small self of ours suddenly to take care of all sentient beings. Therefore, when the practice is done in this way, I've observed in myself difficulties. Difficulties to give happiness and to take suffering. It is usually done by seeing black smoke coming within oneself, bringing all the suffering of being, and by white light going outside and giving happiness and giving virtues to all sentient beings. Now, reading the text by Shantideva, Indian writer of the 8th century, a sentence which I had read many times, and actually I had studied this text for one year in the Amsala. And I remember the end of the eighth chapter that there was something unclear and difficult. 
So I read this sentence again where Shantideva said that for those who wish to be happy and make others happy, this, they should exchange self for others. They should exchange self for others, which is a great mystery. So most of the commentary explain that exchanging self for others means exchanging happiness, self-happiness against the suffering of others. But it is not what the text says. The text says exchanging self for others. Which is quite different. In a few other lines, Shantideva says exactly how, in the same way that we see our body, which is made from something which is other than ourselves, come from the mother and from the father and from other food, so it's utterly other, but through the power of habituation, we see it as ourselves. Say, so why don't you see the body of other, which is exactly the same otherness? Why don't you see the body of other as yourself? And why don't you see yourself, your body, as other? So what you mean in exchanging self for other is exchanging the point of view of seeing all other beings as self and seeing ourselves as other. And this is exchanging self for other. Not our suffering, not our happiness to start with, but just the sense of identity. So what we'll be practicing will be based on that exchanging self for other, and then we'll see that naturally, when we have a sense of ourselves there in all sentient beings, we really immediately want them to be happy, because it's ourselves. And we don't care for this being here, the meditator, if he is taking or she is taking on the suffering. And in this sense, the meditator will like to take much suffering because we don't want any of ourselves there being stuck with some suffering. First, it's based on this exchange itself for others. So that what we will learn if we understand this exchanging, then the practice of love and compassion become completely natural. And then, as Shantideva said, to make oneself happy another, the practice of taking the suffering of others and the practice of giving happiness becomes something which is full of happiness. The practice itself. So it's during the practice, one sees that one start to feel burdened, means that one has not understand the exchange self for others. So this attitude of exchanging self for others is very subtle. It's very subtle. It's like this kind of drawing one may see in psychological tests that you may see in two ways. Maybe two faces or, or one vase in the middle. So you may see one way, one way, and then you can't see the other, suddenly it shifts and you see the other. And it's not that you are building up the other vision, but suddenly you may shift. And it's a little bit this way. For some of us, this is possible immediately, and for some other, it may take uh, quite a few days till we really understand this shift. But to understand this shift means that our practice is really getting to another dimension. So that's very important. That's really essential to our practice of love and kindness, of any kind. So what will be shift from self and other when we will start to see all other beings like ourselves? So first we'll take a neutral person, 
in front of us, we'll imagine a neutral tensor. Now, don't bother if, if this person is not completely neutral, if you like this person slightly or you dislike this person slightly. It doesn't matter. But you just imagine one person in front of you. And then, this person, you will get the feeling that you have for this person, which is usually you don't care so much about. That's why it is a neutral person. Just this person, you don't care. And then, this attitude of not caring, you will see yourself in this way. Not caring for this person, for the meditator. And then you will slowly start to see this person in front of you, like yourself. Not, be very careful, I had so many questions. Not changing the aspect, this person doesn't look like you. This person just keeps exactly the form that this person has. You keep your own form, the other person keeps their own form. What is shifted there is only the sense of identity. Only the sense of identity. If we shift everything, then we just we bring the problem in front of ourselves. So what Shantideva said, he said, exactly as by the power of habituation we have seen ourselves, our body as a self, we identify with it, in the same way we can consider the body of other as ourselves. So we have to keep the body of other being, and then we just look at that person as if it was ourselves, in a different form. So when this shift is made, after that we can start to develop love and kindness. That is very easy. So we'll just try that. We'll just try for maybe 15 minutes. So I'll again, give a few indication, technical indication for that. So you'll take a neutral person in front of you, but soon after that you may imagine two or three persons. We don't want to get to a, a, just a shift to one person. Since we will see ourselves in all sentient beings, then just for the sense of what it is to be neutral, or just for the sense of that we don't care for a person, we choose one person, and then we will make this shift, we may imagine to see ourselves with two or three in two or three persons that we see in front of ourselves, all keeping their own shape. And then having the sense here of this neutral person. And this is very much depending, as long as we keep the sense of self here, we can't really see the self in front of us. And if we really see the sense, the sense of self in front of us, then we will not see the sense of self here. So it really, uh, it goes nearly at the same time. And you check sometimes, one is clinging to the sense of self here, then it's difficult to see it in the person in front of us. So we may check if we may just release this clinging to the sense of self. So try, it will certainly, for most of us, take uh, some time of practice to really understand uh, the shift which is made here. But that's really all the power of Shantideva's text lie in this action itself for us. When that is made, then all the, the end of his beautiful chapter about developing love and kindness for others, then that becomes very obvious and very simple. If one understands this shifting. So just try, don't get confused if you don't start to know who you are anymore. The person practicing is a meditator. Remember, he's not there, the self that you, he's not all the other being now who should practice meditation and the meditator doesn't practice anymore. 
the person changing his or her mind is a meditator. How these changes are arising because we are shifting the sense of self and out. So we try for a few minutes. I don't know anything about Zen tradition and Zen meditation. But I believe that usually the practice is one technique. And there are not so many different practices like in the Tibetan tradition. And sometimes in the Tibetan tradition it's very overwhelming. When one takes a book about Tibetan meditation, immediately one sees there are so many, so many different practices that it is very difficult to know which one to start and which one to put in practice. And when one starts, it's difficult to be sure that it is really this one which is good for me. that in the Zen tradition usually there is one practice at least one knows that there is, it is the only one that one should practice. But we may gather all the different techniques or practice of the Tibetan tradition into the state of awakening which is called Bodhicitta. And the state of awakening has two aspects the ultimate aspect and the relative aspect. So we may see all the practice being gathered in those two aspects, relative and ultimate state of awakening. The ultimate state of awakening is a a comparison free of concept, which is in the mind of somebody who has awakened when there is no more concept as a natural expression of this awakened mind there would be compassion but a compassion without concept that will be the ultimate state of awakening the relative state of awakening is a compassionate wish to attain complete awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. So in this relative aspect, there is consideration for the practitioner and for all sentient beings. The reaching of awakening is the state of freedom that the practitioner will experience for the sake of all sentient beings, to be able to lead all sentient beings to a state of freedom. So the practitioner will not practice only for his or her own sake, but for the sake of all sentient beings. So within those two aspects of the state of awakening, all the practice may be included. So here, in our retreat, in the practice of exchanging self for other, we are developing the relative aspect of the state of awakening. I mean the meditation on the nature of the mind, 
we are developing the ultimate spirit of awakening. Therefore, those two aspects are practiced during our retreat. I remember the first teaching I ever heard from a Tibetan Lama quite some years ago. He said that all sentient beings are moved by the same motivation. There is not the smallest difference. They all share the same concern and their concern with having more happiness and less suffering. So even the smallest animal will still be concerned by avoiding suffering and trying to find a place of comfort. It's the same for us. Most of our actions are motivated by the wish to get rid of suffering or discomfort and trying to find more happiness. When we are seated in the hall, and some kind of suffering may arise, therefore we slightly move. We may even not be aware, moving our back, our legs, when we are in the dining hall, maybe eating. So constantly we, we are shifting our position because suddenly it starts to be slightly painful. So all our actions from morning till evening, they are following this motivation avoiding small discomfort and trying to find a better place, more comfortable place. And this person who was teaching at this time said that if we really want to accomplish what we are looking for, happiness and the absence of suffering, we should really know what happiness is and what suffering is. And we should also know how to accomplish that. Now if we look at condition of humankind, we may see that we are not so successful. It seems that all the energy that we are bringing, trying to accomplish happiness and trying to get rid of suffering, doesn't bring too much success. It is like if blindly we are trying to accomplish happiness and getting rid of suffering. So sometimes by chance we succeed, but not much more than just by chance. So should we consider that it is our own nature to be suffering and therefore just to accept the situation? And to say, well, that's the way it is for human beings. We are bound to suffer and to have very little happiness. Or we may wonder, maybe we are not really seeking happiness in the proper way. Maybe there is something wrong in the way we are trying to get rid of suffering and trying to reach happiness. Maybe we could question that. 
if our vision of the world is wrong, then it is very difficult to know what to expect from the world. In, if our vision of the world is wrong, then we will have expectations which are not in agreement with the nature of the world. Therefore, those expectations will not be fulfilled. Only sometimes by chance. So we may question our vision of the world and see if something could be changed. Of course, many times has the vision of the world been changed. At some time, women and men were seeing the universe with the earth at the center and the sun moving around. And then Copernicus came and said, that's wrong. The sun is at the center and the earth is turning around with many other planets. And that was quite a revolution. There were much opposition to this vision of the world because God is supposed to create the world, the earth, and that's supposed to be the most important. All the rest is just going around to help that. And suddenly somebody comes and says, no, the earth is a very small planet among so many others, and the sun is at the center. So it contradicts many religious beliefs. And it contradicts also the sense of self-image that humankind had as being the most important place in the whole universe. Now there came another revolution when Darwin started to explain us that we were not all made so beautifully by the wish of God, but we were just uh, a link in this chain of evolution from very small animals not so beautiful and some not even so beautiful again and just ending up by chance into this kind of human being that we are now. So we could not so much see our father as this beautiful God in this sense, but we had to see our ancestor in those very, very small animals living in water. Again, there was much opposition and I believe that even some people nowadays do not believe this um, view of Darwin, believe that God has really created men and women just perfect. Then came another revolution when Freud said that if we believe we are really deciding freely, that's quite a mistake. We are moved by some unconscious motivation that we are not aware. So when we believe that we are deciding something, very often we are not really deciding. We are just a play of so many influences that bring us to take some decision. Maybe more knowledge, but is not following any of those visions of the world that suddenly we may believe that now I know how to get to be happy and I know how to be free of suffering. Neither did any of those scientists pretend that they were bringing a vision of the world which will bring happiness and the end of suffering. That was not their pretension. So maybe we need another revolution. Those three did not work. So which type of revolution can we bring in our vision of the world 
that we may be more successful in being happy and getting rid of suffering. So which kind of new vision can we find? And we may look for a new revolutionary who will bring this vision And certainly this vision has to be quite different from all those that we have seen because a slight difference may not be enough to help us in accomplishing happiness and the end of suffering. Now we may look at Shantideva, this monk from the 8th century in India, We don't know if his vision of the world will work, but what we know that he is pretending. That will help us to be happy and make others happy. So we don't know if it works, but we know at least what he pretends. The other never says that will make us happy and that will bring the end of suffering. So Shantideva says, whoever wants happiness for self and for others should practice the supreme mystery exchanging self for others. So that this revolution that he is bringing in our world, exchanging self for others, of course that's very strange. That's a new kind of revolution. We saw that the shifting from the earth at the center to the sun at the center was a great shifting important. Now, we are doing the same, but not with outer world, but with our own consideration. <coughs> so suddenly it will be like the sun, and then all the other will be like the earth, when we believe that the earth is where we are living. So Shantideva in his text, him, take the old or early Buddhist tradition of developing love and kindness. And in the earliest tradition, it was taught with the, with the four Brahma-Vihara, which was love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So love is a wish to see others being happy. So the object of love is happiness. Compassion is a wish to see others free of suffering. The object of compassion is suffering. Joy, as it is described by Nagarjuna, that is, when one sees people happy, the wish that they will be more happy. Not suddenly the wish that I should be happy, but that they would get more happiness. And he said that not the same kind of happiness, but even a more subtle type of happiness. That's what the joy is. And equanimity is a balanced state of mind, making no difference, being not put out of balance between other beings, seeing them exactly in the same way, and between self and other, when one doesn't make any difference. So that's the state of equanimity. So in the earliest tradition, that's how the relationship with others was developed with love, 
compassion, joy, and equanimity. Usually one starts by love before compassion, because it is explained that love is lighter, innocence more easy to develop, and less innocence less has less power than uh, suffering. To explain that, Nagyajuna tells a short story, very interesting. It is at the time of Ashoka, Greek king of India, and he had a brother, and his brother was not following the Buddhist tradition. He was following a Hindu tradition, where they were very hard on themselves, maybe eating very little, and the brother of Ashoka thought that the Buddhists were really lazy. Ashoka wanted to convince his brother that he should follow the Buddhist path. So he spoke with his minister and they organized something to try to convince him. So one day Ashoka was taking a bath and at this time the minister went to the brother and said, why don't you try the crown? see if it fits you well. So he tried and maybe it was, was happy with it. And at this time Ashoka came out and pretended to be very upset. He said, now you are trying to steal my crown. And so you will have to die. We'll put you to death. But for seven days you can enjoy the kingdom and all the pleasure of the kingdom. After seven days you will be killed. So he had the crown for the crown for seven days, but every morning some uh, poor people will uh, be below his window and shout, "You will be killed! You will be killed after six days!" And every day they'll come, "You will be killed after five days." So at the end, after seven days, Ashoka called his brother and said, "How did you enjoy being a king?" He said, but "Not one minute. I was so concerned by being killed after seven days, I could not for one instant." enjoy the pleasure of being a king. So that was to show him that the power of suffering was much more happy than the power of happiness. Therefore, the power of suffering there just covered completely the power of happiness. That's why one would first develop love and then compassion. So you want the end of the story. He was not killed and then he followed the Buddhist path and then became a monk and suddenly awakened. <laughs> yeah, we always try to find story with a beautiful end. So that's what Nagarjuna, the story is bringing to explain how uh, happiness is not so strong in the face of suffering. That's why we first, as we are considering happiness when we develop love, then that will be lighter to develop, and then when we will be developing compassion, we left to consider the suffering of others. That would be more difficult, and therefore we need all the peace developed by the practice of love. Nagyajuna describes three stages of the development of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. First, he said that Love has for object sentient beings. So one wish all sentient beings to be happy. 
one has in mind the happiness of all sentient beings. That's the first stage for ordinary people. Then, when the practice deepens, one sees that all sentient beings have no true self-existence. They have no self. Therefore, at this time, the love is not directed to sentient beings, but to objects, as he says, because at this time the five khanda, the five elements of the sentient being will be taken as a crown. So that will be object. First is sentient being, second is object, and the third type of love, compassion and so on, will be non-conceptual. At this time, when somebody awakened, there will be no sense, no concept whatsoever, yet there will be, in the freedom of an awakened mind, there will be a neutral compassion without concept. And that will be the third kind. And we see that relating to the two types of the spirit of awakening, the two first one will be the related spirit of awakening, and the third one will be the non-conceptual, that will be the ultimate spirit of awakening. So Shantideva in his text describes all the practice helping to develop this spirit of awakening, ultimate and related spirit of awakening. The way he starts his text is very interesting because if we imagine that it is the text the most used for the development of love and kindness and compassion, then he starts by saying, I have no concern for the welfare of others. At the first, the beginning of his book, so I think that's quite interesting and even very strange way of starting a book which is supposed to help for the development of love and compassion. So we'll see why he may start in this way. In the Tibetan tradition, one practice which is most often done to develop love and compassion is a practice called Tonglen. Ton means to give and Len means to take. Means to give one's happiness, virtue, wealth, and to take the suffering of others upon oneself. Usually it is practiced with the visualization, seeing light going outside of oneself, one sees white light shining in all the direction, bringing happiness, wealth to all sentient beings. Then one may see black smoke coming within oneself, taking all the suffering of sentient beings. This black smoke is coming within ourselves, and we imagine that when it goes down on the earth, and the earth is receiving all the suffering of all sentient beings. One practices that with the help of breathing, and when, with the out-breath, when he's giving happiness, and the in-breath, when he's taking the suffering of others. And it is said that in Tibet, some monks, every breathing, during morning till evening, they would practice that, giving happiness and taking the suffering of others. Here, Shantideva does not teach it this way. It is slightly different. What he starts with, it is, uh, accepting self for others. 
which is stated in a clear way, and one sees the other sentence within the same text where it really gives some precision what he means by exchanging self for others. Not only exchanging the suffering and happiness, but exchanging the sense of self with the sense of others. And that's the revolution that Shantideva is bringing into our world, into our vision of the world. And he pretends that will bring happiness. And he said that whoever wants to bring happiness to self and others should practice the supreme mystery, exchanging self for others. And in the precision, he said exactly how we see ourselves, or we can develop the sense of self with respect to two small selves, from the father and mother, who are completely other, then from that beginning, from this uh, small self, we'll develop a sense of identity, yeah. development of the body, then we will cling to that as I, me. Well, they are completely other. We see they come from the father and from the mother. They were not ourselves to start with. Then Shantideva said, if we can do that by the power of habituation, then we can also, by the same power of habituation, develop the sense of self with respect to others. Then we'll be able to see, to develop the sense of self with respect to all other beings. And then we'll develop the sense of other with respect to our own self or our own constituents, our own aggregate. So that is quite a revolution. He explains in many ways that this attitude of changing oneself when one clings to the sense of identity and then to the sense of self, one is led to so many actions trying to please this self and to bring happiness. And he said it doesn't work. You take an example of the fire. So he says the fire and one's hand is in the fire. So the only way to bring an end to this suffering, the hand burning, is by taking the hand out of the fire. Said so in the same way, if we don't withdraw from the sense of self, we cannot bring an end to suffering. So by this practice of exchanging self for others, then we are, at this time, getting rid of the root of this self-churching attitude, the sense of self. And then we are developing this sense with all other sentient beings. And what is amazing in this last part of the eighth chapter of this Bodhicayavatara is that all the attitude, the pleasure, that they are called, which usually bring much suffering, when they are arising in the context of exchanging self for others, suddenly they become the root for virtues. Since most of us have some tendency of jealousy, hatred, or whatever, by this exchanging self for others, those attitudes will arise, rise naturally 
and they will be transformed into virtue just by the extending self for others. It means that then our concern or our jealousy or whatever will be for the sake of all others because now we see all others as ourselves. So all our self-concern will be others' concern. And maybe the disdain that we may have for others, that will be for the meditator at this time. In this text, I was concerned when I first heard it, because he's speaking very strongly against the self. And I thought that's not so skillful if one starts to develop self-hatred. That is not a way to bring peace within ourselves. And reading the text, one sees that he's really very hard, and he says that you will uh, transform this self as a slave. Many other ways, so he expressed that very, very strong sense of uh, not respecting the self. But that only makes sense when the exchanging self for others has been accomplished. Then in this time, there is no sense of self-image being destroyed. If you want, there is no target anymore. So all the bad feelings, one may imagine that Shantideva is asking us to develop as no target, because there is no sense of self anymore. And if you wish, what he is there uh, aiming at is not the self-image or whatever, is a clinging that may still slightly stay, which is still, if you wish, a small flame which could still burn us. So by this attitude of strongly looking at the sense of identity and saying that, for example, you must be transformed as a slave, that which is questioned there is the grasping at the sense of identity, which is a source of suffering. So it is not in the sense of bringing some more suffering upon oneself, like in some tradition, or many traditions have that of inflicting some suffering upon oneself, and that not to be understood in this way. So how should we practice this action in self for others? and then view that in the context of the pleasure. So by the power, the practice, slowly we will be able to see or to develop the sense of self with respect to all other human beings. And it is very strange, but that can be done. You may imagine that you meet your neighbor and you have a sense of self. Not that suddenly he or she has transformed, taken your own shape, but exactly the way that he or she appears, then you still have the sense that of self. Not only with one person, but with many persons. Sense of self may be developed there. And when the sense of self is not cultivated here anymore with respect to the meditator, then immediately a concern for them arises. What can I do for you? because it is oneself one is meeting. Then naturally, one is concerned, exactly as one was concerned so much by oneself 
to change every instant our position in our dining hall. That I don't want to be by the window, it's too cold, I want to be here, or whatever. All those concerns, this immense energy that we are spending to protect ourselves, suddenly this naturally will arise when we see all other and outside. It will not require the least um, energy or effort. Naturally, when we do it. And then, when is no concern anymore by the sense, by the meditator. Because it's just other. And the sense is not that I've lost something so precious. When one starts to understand this shift, it's not that Oh, that's sad, you know, I've lost my best friend, which was my sense. It's rather the sense of having gotten rid of a huge burden. Why was I caring about her? This master, so, so demanding every instant. So when slowly one starts to understand how this is practiced, it is really like Shantideva said, bring happiness for self and for others. So the practice is not a practice of mortification, of inflicting suffering upon oneself, but it is a practice of happiness, of being unburdened. And when one will start to give happiness to others, one will not have the sense that I'm losing something, but rather I'm receiving. I'm receiving because I'm already so more I give, more I'm receiving. When I will take the suffering of others, I will not have the sense of being burdened because I'm here in all others. Therefore, more suffering I will take, less suffering I will have. I will feel unburdened. The sense of being unburdened when one takes the suffering and the sense of receiving when one gives happiness and virtue, that will make the practice practice of happiness. Exactly as Shantideva to make oneself happy and other happy. Then he calls that a bridge of a supreme mystery. One may wonder why he calls this practice a supreme mystery. So in the sense of mystery, sometimes it's translated also as secret. Why is it secret? Because some teacher said that this practice should be not taught to many people that should be kept hidden. It was one teacher I received from understood that in this way, that the practice should be hidden and kept secret from most of the people and only taught to a few students. Which is nice, but in a sense this text, the Bodhicharya is the most taught text in the Tibetan tradition. So it's slightly strange that suddenly you say, but you don't teach that. And it really, there are so many verses in the eighth chapter, why then should it be included in a text which is for everyone? We may understand this supreme mystery maybe in another way. First, of course, there is a sense of secret, because you don't go to all your friends and say, I'm practicing it himself for others. Because then, if you forget once, they will say, ah, it is a way that you are changing self for others. So one will not promote oneself and say, I'm practicing that. One has to practice that in a hidden way, not pretending that one is practicing that. So hidden for oneself or from others, 
not from the way of hearing the practice. And it's a supreme mystery, because it works. Because strangely enough, we have tried so, for so many centuries, cherishing self and not caring for others, and that does not work to bring happiness for self and for others. And when we may reverse this attitude, suddenly it does work. So that's a supreme mystery. We go exactly against what we would believe is the proper way to accomplish happiness and the end of our suffering. Suddenly we reverse completely this attitude and we found out that it does work. So that is really a revolution. I will give you an example how in, in this text we can practice with some kind of pleasure, like jealousy for example. So you have to follow because we are shifting from here to there and uh, not that you will not get confused. But imagine that we have jealousy for somebody that we imagine higher than ourselves and we wonder why this person is receiving everything and uh, all the good qualities and whatever may be the way we like to phrase the expression of our jealousy. Now to bring that into the light of patienting self for others, we will put ourselves in the situation of this person toward whom we have jealousy. Which means that we imagine somebody lower than us looking at us with the same type of phrases. Why is he, why is he in this position? Why does he get everything? But then we'll practice action self for others. Therefore we'll be there, down, looking at this person here, the meditator, and then we can develop jealousy with all our power, all our imagination. So we practice that. We practice jealousy after having shifted the sense of identity. Then we may come back to the sense of the meditator, if you wish, the sense of self, and then look at the person there. And we may check what is left of the feeling of jealousy. And you'll see that no jealousy is left. So then the, by the shifting, exchanging the position with somebody that may have the same kind of feeling towards us, then it really burns any possibility of keeping this pleasure within our own mind. Of course, that requires that we start to be skillful in exchanging self for others, that we may really have a sense of otherness here, but in this case we really shift and the person being here is the person that we see ourselves here really in their lower person and, and this lower person will put here. And at this time we really develop the sense of jealousy. Now if it is on the contrary a sense of disdain that we may have for some lower people, then we'll imagine somebody looking at us from a higher place with some sense of disdain and then we'll shift We'll imagine ourselves looking at the other person here. And again, we can practice the pleasure this time, and then we'll come back to the original position. If we use this aspect of the practice, it is a very powerful tool to bring the pleasure to a powerless state. Just by revolution in our way of seeing the world, revolution in the position that we are seeing ourselves in the world.
we may traditionally see that to stop the pleasures need a lot of practice and a lot of patience. But by this shifting of position, then immediately they lose their power. When there's a need to bring a very quiet mind, to be very aware of the type of pressure arising, just by the shifting, they are suddenly becoming powerless. So why did Shantideva start his book by saying, I have no concern for the welfare of others? Now if we understand that in the light of examining self for others, therefore he starts in the position, if you wish, first of being other. And he could have said, I have only concern for self. But at this time, the self is knowing all things in being. Therefore he does not take the standpoint of, I have concern for others because he has practiced shift of position. In the text, he also says that then, after practicing extending self for others, there is no way one will have some sense of pride when one is practicing, giving, and so on. That one, exactly as one is not proud in the evening because one has fed oneself during the day. You don't say, oh, I am so nice because today I fed myself three times. So he said, in the same way, there will be not the smallest sense of pride to give to others because one gives to oneself. And that one may experience that really if one practices extending self for others and you may meet beggar in the street, for example, and you give, and sometimes when the beggar says thank you, you will wonder why. Why is he saying thank you? Because you have the feeling that you are just giving to yourself and you are receiving. So in this practice, some meditator find that it is slightly strange because they don't have the sense that it is costing anything, because suddenly there is no sense of self. Therefore, who is practicing love and compassion? And there is no sense that it is costing something. It doesn't cost me anything. I give to myself and I take my suffering away. And that's exactly why it is powerful. If it is causing something to us, then there is a huge limitation. But with the practice of exchanging self for others, then this is starting to be a selfless, rather than selfless comparison. It doesn't start from a sense of self, which is limited, sense of I, which is limited, and will quickly reach its own limitation. When you say there is no self here, then there is no limitation, to the practice of love and to the practice of compassion. Also no sense of self-esteem because there is no sense of self. And sometimes one likes with the sense of self-esteem because I can practice love and compassion so in the sense that I am improving myself. But obviously no sense of improving oneself because the sense of identity is not held to anymore. So in the practice, if you get the sense that there is no sense of self, giving or self-receiving, and that you don't uh, have this sense that I am doing well, 
I think we understand that the shifting is taking place, and I think that the practice may start to uh, get some power and some strength. So at the beginning of every session of extending self for others, I will bring new indications that you may understand more and more clearly how this is practiced and how one can really extend that till really that may be quite powerful and quite strong. So we may just sit for a few minutes in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.